Hi, Janet Gallon, Love Letters Live. And today's guest is someone you may know, depending on what kind of things you do and, and what kind of culture you inhabit and I guess how well traveled and what your what your um historical memories may be. So it's Mark Salter. Do you say Mark Saltarelli? Yeah. Okay. I mean in Italy I'd say Saltarelli, but we don't I mean there. I see it and I <laughs> want to say Santarelli, but I think yeah. that's it's so hard to know. Okay, Santarelli. Okay. Santarelli. Yeah. Thank Santarelli, thank you. Okay, guest Mark Santarelli. You say it's hi. It's actually salt saltarelli, but Pardon me? Okay. like salt. Saltarelli. Saltarelli. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um and let's just go right to you because we're gonna talk about Studio One. And when I first saw your name linked to that, the first thing I thought of was, oh hooray, Studio One, the um drama series that was a television mm. hit in the I guess early fifties. No connection to that, right? No connection whatsoever. No. Are you familiar with that? I am. Yeah. I obviously I've done a lot of research uh, in developing the film, and that always comes up as well. But I think we're kind of in the Google hits. We're kind of above that now in terms of relevance. <laughs> because your present time. Okay. Yep. So why don't you just dive right in and talk about a little bit about the movie you're making and what it's about and why you are doing it and what is Studio One. Okay. Um, well, first, Studio One was uh, the very first, or almost the first, uh, there's a discrepancy of that, uh, gay disco in America. Where is and it located? It was located in West Hollywood. Oh, okay. uh, it was uh, on Robertson. It actually spanned from L Robertson Boulevard to Lapeer. So it went this way. It was huge. Uh, originally, it was, uh, originally, it was a camera factory that was built in the 20s. Uh, Mitchell Camera Factory, and that place actually made the cameras that filmed The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the I mean, it's just got this history that's unbelievable. It's this kind of big, it was this kind of big, ugly uh, factory building uh, that was transformed uh, in 1974. Who got to transform it? Uh, well, it, before Scott Forbes came along, um, there was uh, a place called The Factory, and that's uh, Let's see, it was uh, several several celebrities of the time put together kind of a, a classic uh, New York style cabaret room where all the stars like Sammy Davis Jr. was one of them um, and, and Paul Newman uh, and one other who I can't remember, uh, they got together and uh, turned it into a nightclub. Okay. Uh, and then Scott Forbes came along in 1974 and he was a regular at the club because he was uh, interested in becoming a star himself. So that's where he went, apparently. Um, and he decided he to- be an actor or is he Is he still with us? Um, no, he's not He's not with us anymore, unfortunately. Uh, no, he's not an actor. Uh, he actually was a um, an eye doctor, an oh. ophthalmologist. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he decided to give all that up and create this, this disco. Okay. Um, you know, it was 1974 and the gay civil rights movement was just kind of uh, coming out. It, it was a few years after Stonewall, the Stonewall riot that kind of kicked everything into high gear. Uh, and he, he turned it into, you know, the place for gay men who at that time were kind of living double lives. Uh, any bars. Oh, in the 70s, living double lives yeah. still. I see. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in... Uh, 
for any bars that were around at that time in, in West Hollywood, uh, there, there were like private entrances. And you, you, oh, I was going to ask about that. Because if you're living a gay, a, a gay life, a double life, you don't want to be seen walking into a yeah. gay safety haven. Right. And you also didn't want the police to harass, which they did regularly. Oh. Um, one interesting side note is the reason West Hollywood became known for its all of its gay bars is because it was out of the reach of LAPD. It was a, a unincorporated area at that time. So it was run by... Because it was unincorporated, it was out of the reach? Yeah, it was in the purview of the LA, I mean, LA County sheriffs, and uh -huh. they were a lot more lenient than back then. And the LAPD was pretty, pretty rough. They still are, I guess. But back then it was, it was crazy. Uh, they would frequently arrest people for being gay. But Red Hollywood is now its own city, is it not? It's its own city, but it still has the uh, sheriffs. Okay. Uh, they oh, they yeah. hired the LA yeah. County sheriffs. Yeah. Um, so, you know, going into a bar back then was was you, the back entrance. You'd look around. You hope nobody would see you. Scott wanted to kind of change all of that, and he created this this disco that was huge, and uh, they had a thousand people at least every night. That's how big it was. It was massive. You'd go up these stairs, the factory stairs, and get to the top, and then there'd be this fantasy world, you know. Um, and to get into the place, you had to stand outside in line. And when it got really popular, uh, there was a long line. And that was the first time that people would actually stand outside and um, not be afraid, I guess, even though there were people driving by throwing bottles or yelling you know, horrible things. They, they, uh, they decided this is the place you could go and you can be yourself. You don't have to worry about the outside world and about the fear that was always there. Um, so it was really a groundbreaking landmark place uh, for a lot of people of that age. Um, and then a little bit after it opened, which is really what made it so special, in my opinion, um, the back area, which, you know, it's a huge, long building, keep in mind. And so the disco was sort of over here. And then there was this whole back area that wasn't really being used, um, a lot of empty space. So Scott decided that he would start this New York style cabaret room there, which was called the back entertainment. Entertainment. Yeah. But not only for gay people, uh, it I was, was you know, about that. Yes, yeah. because today, if you open someplace that's primarily gay and you've got good entertainment, everyone's going to come. Well, he was the first to integrate, uh -huh. uh, the communities, uh, huge stars, uh, started coming there and the reason why is because uh actually when it first opened it didn't get a lot of business probably for that reason because you know it was in a cave bar and who would go there uh but cheetah rivera was working on the musical chicago with bob fossey and bob fossey uh, they were rehearsing and bob fossey you know infamously had his heart attack and that shut the whole production down for almost nine months i think uh, -huh. uh so cheetah had all of this time off you know what's she gonna do and uh liza do i have to say her last name liza vanelli uh said you should start your own cabaret act nightclub act and so she did and john kander and fred ebb uh who wrote chicago and many other great musicals and gave liza her new york new york song um they they put together an act for her talked her into doing it and they tried it out in New York and then they uh, said, you have to bring it to 
Hollywood to LA. People have to see this. So um, Liza's father, uh, Vincent Minnelli, the famous film director, uh, was a friend of Scott Forbes because he, he loved Hollywood history and um, he loved the history of that building. And he, he set it up so that she would premiere for two weeks at the back lot. And Liza invited all of her friends, like from Jimmy Stewart to, uh, I mean, literally everybody, Cary Grant, Betty Davis, everybody showed up for Cheetah. And it was this huge hit. The whole city kind of heard about it. And so from that point on, it sort of became the place to go uh, if you want to see top-notch, uh, you know, New York-style cabaret. And you have um, Cheetah Rivera now in your movie? Yes, I do. Yeah, that's what's so thrilling. Um, Tell us more. Okay, I'm sorry. I want to back up a little bit because a lot of this is new to me, and I'm sure it is new to a lot of people. Um, who's in your movie and who wrote it? And Well, yeah, it's a documentary, so uh, I guess I wrote it in terms of structuring, but uh -huh. all of these people uh, really wrote it through their uh, sharing of interviews. I interviewed about, oh God, 40, 40 people at least uh, oh, at, of an okay. hour each. So will there was a lot able, of- will, will we be able to stream it? Uh, at some point, yeah, not not currently. We're currently on the festival circuit. We, okay. we premiered at Outfest in July and oh. uh, we went to, it was sold out. So many people are just passionate about those times uh, and that place kind of represents uh, their their youth. Uh, and then we went to North Carolina and won the audience award there, even though people had never heard of Studio One. So that's good to know that, you know, you don't have to really have a personal connection to connect to the movie because it's Why did you go to North Carolina? Uh, that was just the next festival that uh, oh, there was accepted a festival the film. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the, they have sorry, I'm, I'm a little bit behind okay. the time here. I'm so sorry. But again, Outfest yep. is what? Outfest is the Los Angeles uh, Gay and Lesbian Festival. It's been in existence for now 42 years. 42 years? Yeah, 42 years. It's, it's, a, it's a big one. Um, and that's kind of the perfect place for us to start sure. because it's here. It's the home of... And, and this festival one. has been welcomed every year, everywhere? Uh, well, it, we are next... We're actually in a couple of days, we're going to San Diego. Uh, we're, we'll be going to Chicago for Reeling Film Festival and then Atlanta and another North Carolina festival in, right. in Winston-Salem. And so and far it's all national. Have you been invited internationally? To other actually, uh, we'll be in Oslo, Norway. Oh, so, okay, your world. It's our first international, yeah. And lots more that I can't announce yet, but uh, okay. some really exciting ones that it'll be in. And, and we hope... You know, ultimately, after we do the festival circuit, that we can sell it uh, and have it on Netflix or one of those. So I I, I, I I interrupted because you were touching on things that I was ignorant about. But get back to who's in it. And mm -hmm. Well, I, I knew. I, OK, so I actually went to Studio One when I first moved here around 1984. Oh, uh, yeah. I went to Loyola Marymount. Uh, to finish my film degree. And I had heard, you know, I had just come out as a gay person and I had heard about Studio One because it was famous. Um, and so I have, you know, some memories of going there. I didn't jump into the dance <laughs> that much. I just kind of watched on the side. Uh, it was 
quite, you know, surreal, I guess. The you, place you tend to be a shy itself. person? Well, I was especially back then, but not as much now, hopefully. Uh, but I thought that, you know, oh, this has just been here. You know, it was kind of a ripoff of Studio 54, the infamous. Uh, I had no idea until I started working on the film that it went way back to 1974 and everything that happened there. Um, so it was it was revealing to me. And that was when I started back in 2019. That's how long I've been working on it. Um, I, I researched and uh, I should give kudos to Clifford Bell, who connected me with Lloyd Coleman and Gary Steinberg, who were backlot producers in the 80s. Uh, and they kind of got me started because they were planning a reunion before the building was to be torn down. Uh, well, you've, done, you've done something huge here. And I have a question about you, if I may. Um, if it's not too personal, you can tell me if it is. But you referred to the moment that you came out as a gay man. How old were you? Oh, I was 19. That was so it. I was in Illinois. Yeah. What, what was life like before that? I mean, so many people today just grow up with it. I mean, they know early yep. and they're not, you know, confused by it and they're comfortable with it. What 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 was your life like before? And what made you decide to come out? Well, you know, growing up in Illinois and Peoria, uh, a very conservative place. Is that right? I mean, I obviously I, I knew I was different and being Catholic made it From a childhood? little bit harder. Well, by the time I was, you know, 10 or 11, I started kind of realizing that. Uh, and uh, since I was Catholic and an altar boy, I kind of prayed, oh, please make this go away. You know? oh. <laughs> yeah, that was what I went through. But ultimately, I realized you can't really make it go away. But I and couldn't why, bring why, myself, right? Yeah. But back then it was, you know, a whole different world. Um, How did your parents react? Uh, well, I didn't tell them until my mother just figured it out later when I was in college. Out? She just knew, uh, and that was a moment when I um, said yes, you know, and we both cried. And then, so she went to therapists, and she went to one that said, "Oh, he can be changed." Oh my! And so, so she fired him, fortunately, and went to another, <laughs> and and kind of figured it out for herself. She and she was the best mom I ever. Could oh, have that is so wonderful! Yeah. You're, the, you're the best son ever, too. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, there's so many wonderful. I mean, I know of so many because of friends. So many wonderful, uplifting, funny, adorable coming out stories. I'm hoping somebody will do a book of them someday. Yeah, oh, there's a hundred thousand of them, just like yeah. stories about yeah. Studio One. There's, and there's your, so many. Was your father part of the family also? Yeah, my parents divorced when I was six years old, uh, but oh. my father subsequently moved here two years after I did. Uh, he was a professor at USC. What did he teach? He transferred. He taught uh, linguistics, the origin of language, um, and he's still with us and living in Westwood, uh, and he always accepted me as well. So I've been really fortunate because that so wonderful. many people, especially back then, but still now, um, you know, have parents who just shun them and throw them out. Um, you do hear about really that. Fortunate. You do hear about that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and my brother as well. Uh, once he found out that he accepted, everybody accepted me, which was something I, I didn't expect maybe, or I was just afraid. But once I isn't that just a tribute my to truth. everybody, yeah. tribute to yeah. all of you. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yep. Um, I'm very fortunate. Uh, but still, I guess it's difficult for young people today. Is it still? From what I've been told, yeah. Probably mostly because of the phones, you know. It's what a different kind of world. Yeah, they're kind of in, they're disconnected from people and um, there's still a lot of hate going on and it's kind of being stoked by, you know, certain political movements. Oh, uh, so yeah, okay. That's why I feel this film is so relevant that it took so long to finally get it out. Oh. Maybe it's a good thing because right now in this moment, it's it's important to remember the history because the film not only talks about the history of that place, but the right. history of the whole gay rights movement from 74 to 93. Okay, and a lot happened. Yeah. That's good I mean, the so excitement. You this film may correct some ills. Well, it's just a preservation of, of our history that some people are trying to erase. Sure. And it's a, uh, a reminder, of course, to the people who lived through those eras and who survived the 80s, of course, with AIDS crisis, uh, just remind us where we came from. And for younger people who have no idea <laughs> how they got their rights and how, how fragile well, they are, um i think oh yes that's so, very important yeah and it's hard to get them to pay attention you know because they're on TikTok and they like 20 second things <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully some of them will sit for the 90 minutes and uh the ones who who did go to the screenings i mean it just told me how much it moved them and how they had no idea of what aids was really you know, in the 80s yeah i mean they know what aids is it's really easy you just take a pill or whatever it's not a big deal right and um some of them have have no clue what what kind of a tragedy it was for almost an entire decade or more yeah. uh and the film definitely you know covers that it's that's not all about aids but that was an important part because joan rivers uh hosted the very first aids benefit uh, and they had death threats. That's part of our film. Melissa talks about her mother. Uh, it was the first benefit for APLA before anybody did it, before Liz Taylor was involved. And this film kind of gives her her, her, yes. her due. Well, so now, now you're involved in showing at festivals. When, mm. when we can stream, you will let us all know right away, I'm guessing. Sure. Yep. Okay. Yep. We're working so on... Uh, sending it out to distributors uh, and seeing who who will pick it up. Okay. Now, so is filmmaking kind of the first thing you did professionally? I mean, you were young when you started this. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to make home movies with my friends in Peoria. So, so it's uh, not like you were, you know, had some other profession and then you switched into this. This was No, your this is all I know how to do. It's all I ever wanted to do. Now you're established as a filmmaker. And I hate to do this, but I'm curious. What next? You what have next? in uh, mind for the next project? I have a lot of things in mind. Um, I started doing narrative, you know, dramatic uh, short films, and and um, I sort of got sidetracked with documentary because with the documentary you don't need a, a lot of advanced funding, <laughs> so it was kind of perfect um, for me I to think, just start making the movie. Are, I think people are so drawn to documentaries and I have an idea as to, I mean, I am just, I, I look for documentaries daily for new documentaries. Why do you think, what is the power of them? Even over a 
dramatic but, presentation. Well, obviously they're real, uh, but if you're doing it correctly, uh, you you use kind of the same skills and uh, that you would for a dramatic uh, film structurally. Sure. It's it's really the same thing if you want to pull your audience forward and give them an emotional catharsis or whatever. It, it's sort of the same thing in a way. You're just except, except using for one thing as an audience. When you, I think, you tell me what you think. When you watch a documentary you feel that you're getting the truth. You're getting, like you said, something real. You're getting the truth or a truth. In a drama, you have to tease it out. What part is, I don't know. Right. Well, you don't expect the truth. I mean, even when they're telling a, a true story, like I've been watching Painkiller series, which is amazing. We should check it out on Netflix about the opioid crisis. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a, they, they say that, yes, this is based on true stories, but you have to dramatize it. Um, and I guess in a documentary, the same way. I mean, I'm telling the truth as, as I see it. And uh, certain things I try to give multiple viewpoints so the audience can decide, well, what's the like, truth like what kind of thing? Different people, right. Like, for example, uh, there was a, a, a protest because they, they didn't allow women or people of color in the 70s. And there was a big protest against Studio One, and that's part of the film. Oh, really? uh, there was this infamous "No open-toed shoes allowed," which was really say that again. No open-toed shoes were allowed, so oh. women were turned away if they had, which they always did back then, uh, open-toed shoes. And the real reason was to keep women out. Scott, for all of the, what he did, uh, had flaws, and. Um, I don't think he was racist, but he wanted a place for white gay men only. And uh, eventually he changed as the 80s came along. But um, but that that's a part of the story and it's a part of the times, I guess. Um, there were other clubs that opened up that had no no uh, admission, you know, discrimination policy. So, um, yeah, we deal with all of it, not only the wonderful stuff like Cheetah coming and having it blow up and... Yeah. And then uh, there's a story about uh, Betty Davis introducing Geraldine Fitzgerald. They were in Dark Victory together and Betty introduced uh, her. And we have all of the photographs of that night. We have Betty Davis sitting in the back lot smoking a cigarette. Yeah. Uh, it's like I've made a movie that has Betty Davis in it, which is really cool. Yeah, me. <laughs> Let me ask you something, because I, I am so you know clearly about the power of written letters, handwritten love letters which includes a lot. Love letter can be pretty much any kind that's about the other guy. If you were to write one right now, to, and I hope you do, to, and to whom would it be? And are you a letter writer anyway? Um, not lately, I guess. Uh, I used to be, yeah. Who would you write one to a, now you know. if you were to just pick somebody? If you well, can't... My, 